1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I'd just like to tell you that the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast, Nature's Past. I hope you enjoy the interview. Environmental health, a resource-dependent community, and the world's largest chrysotile asbestos mine.
0: When I started my research, I really did wonder what kind of wisdom sits in a town called asbestos.
1: A conversation with Jessica Van Horsen about the environmental history of the town of asbestos. I'm Sean Carage, and you're listening to episode fifty-five of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. In twenty twelve, Canada stopped mining and exporting asbestos. Once considered a miracle mineral for its fireproof qualities, Asbestos came to be better known as a carcinogenic, hazardous material banned in numerous countries around the world. Canada was once a leading producer of asbestos and home to the world's largest chrysotile asbestos mine located in the town of asbestos in the province of Quebec. This is the subject of a new book by Professor Jessica Van Horsen. A Town Called Asbestos is a thoroughly researched and thoroughly shocking account of the history of asbestos mining, environmental health, and resistance in this small Quebec resource town. How did the people of the town of asbestos respond to the growth of asbestos mining, the knowledge of the harmful effects of asbestos, and the consequences for their own bodies? To find out, I spoke with Jessica.
0: Hi, I'm Jessica Van Horsen. I'm a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University in the U.K.,
1: Hi, Jessica. Thanks for joining us uh, and uh, coming to tell us a little bit more about your new book. Um, for listeners out there uh, who haven't read the book yet, uh, when they do, they're going to discover that there are there are actually two protagonists to the story here. On the one hand, you have a mineral, and on the other, you have a place. Uh, so for context for listeners, can you start by telling us about the differences between asbestos with a lowercase a and asbestos with an uppercase a.
0: Sure. And just as a warning to listeners, there's a lot of the word asbestos in the book. (laughs) Um, But um, because it it involves a place called asbestos as well as a mineral called asbestos, Um, they are obviously two distinct things. Um, Asbestos, the mineral, is a fireproof mineral that was formed millions and millions of years ago in rock, um, and when you it appears on the landscape, it looks like a woolly rock, and you can break it apart and weave it much like cotton, so its fibers are very cotton like um, and and that is the mineral asbestos mm-hmm. asbestos the community was formed in the nineteenth century uh, around a small open cast asbestos mine, well small at the time the royal <laughs> The royal Mail service is the Is the department that gave the community its name Um, very inventive of them, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also important to remember that in the town of asbestos, the most the majority of the population is French Canadian, and they call the mineral amiant, which is the French word for asbestos, Mm -hmm. Um, and that can help distinguish the two, especially in the local population. Asbestos is different from amiant.
1: So it's interesting that the town in Quebec actually has an English name.
0: Yes. For sure. And it does speak to waves and waves of colonialism and those sorts of trying to make communities fit into an Anglo-normative idea of Canada.
1: So this, I think, is one of the most interesting places to begin for thinking about this book, because... um, It's a book that doesn't fit into the genre of commodity histories where we've seen environmental historians publish books on the history of cod or cotton uh, or some other global commodity. Um, But your book is is rooted in a place. Um, So it's it is about this commodity and how it travels around the world. But it's about the history of the town of asbestos. So can you explain why you took this particular approach to studying both the mineral and the place?
0: Sure, and and there are a lot of great environmental histories of commodities, and the, and I love the idea of following them around the world, but I also love the idea of thinking about what is it like to live in a town called asbestos, um, and of course I've read Keith Basso's Wisdom Sits in Places before, and when I started my research, I really did wonder what kind of wisdom sits in a town called asbestos. Um, and so that, is, that was sort of my ground point for my research there to see how a community that is entirely dependent on one commodity and defined in a lot of ways by this one commodity <sighs> unfolds its own history and how it is connected to a global commodity trade, but still is very focused on the local. And I thought, you know what, place matters in this story. And so what can this place tell us about this larger narrative of trade, disease, deception, all of those things?
1: And there's a big story here that implicates the town enormously. So certainly there could have been dozens of other versions of this narrative of the history of asbestos. Um, But the story that you found in asbestos is quite intriguing. Um, I wonder, too, for listeners, it may seem jarring to think of of a town called asbestos, but... As the book outlines, there was a time when the mineral itself was associated with safety. Um, Whereas today, I think most people would think of asbestos as a hazardous material. So can you explain why asbestos uh, was once a mineral that people thought of as something that promoted safety?
0: Sure. And that's a great question because it really does rest on the uh, local population's pride in place, this idea that asbestos was synonymous with safety And in in many ways, it still is a a material that can be used to prevent the spread of fire. Um, Its it's chemical makeup means that it can withstand temperatures up to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so that was actually really remarkable, especially in 20th century North America or Western Europe, when electricity was being installed in so many wooden buildings and fires, massive fires, were spreading throughout urban centers. And so asbestos was seen as integral to safety during this time. Um, it was also used to reinforce cement. So if, if you were having a bridge built, um, it was important to have asbestos in the cement that was being used in your bridge because it would make it stronger and more durable. And it would reduce taxes because you'd have to repair it less. And so for much of the 20th century, if you had asbestos in your home, in your office or in your bridges, you were safe. And um, that's something that the people who mined asbestos and who worked with the mineral really did believe in.
1: This is a part of the book that I had never thought about in uh, environmental history. And I think about the work of Stephen Pine here. Fire uh, is... A prominent part of human history and central to industrialization, but I never considered the role of fireproof materials in facilitating industrialization. And you make a case here that asbestos, especially in the 20th century, is the quintessential mineral for modernization.
0: Yeah, and I think it helps produce modern society as we now know it, um, allowing us to be innovative and daring in new technologies that were being developed throughout the 20th century. Um, You know, even the brake pads on your car. It's fundamental to have asbestos in those brake pads. Um, Just something as simple as that um, to keep your family safe. And, of course, it was actually putting your family at risk, but um, during the 20th century, it was marvellous.
1: And, and this would be a huge point of pride for the miners working in the town of asbestos and their families, that they were at the front lines of transforming the world uh, with this miraculous mineral.
0: Definitely. And, and there were there's a lot of reports in the local paper and in industry literature about how great it was that at, at no point in your daily life in the 20th century could you not come into contact with asbestos. And that was a great source of pride. And as well, even if we're talking 20th century um, and Quebec's asbestos workers, the the world wars were were quite contentious in Quebec as far as French Canadians not feeling comfortable fighting for a British war. Um, And so the asbestos miners of Quebec felt that they were helping save the world by mining asbestos rather than joining the military. And so through that way, they were doing a hero's effort um, without actually putting on a uniform. Um, And that was really important for them as well, especially with all of the criticism of Quebecers for not enlisting in the military, they were doing their part.
1: Now, there's a lot of tensions in this book, though, uh, where you show the community's attachment to the mineral and the centrality of the mineral to the economic life of the town. Um, But there are a number of points at which the community is in conflict with the mineral and the mine. Um, Over the course of the book, we see um, the mine begin to, to eat the town as this growing open pit mine expanded to consume city block after city block. How did this happen? How did the community respond to this really dramatic environmental change in the landscape?
0: Yeah, it was it was very much a community focused on the future, not the past. And that was sort of the promotional material that was put forward by the company advancing the mine into the neighborhoods. Um, it, it started off accidentally when the community was founded around the mine. Uh, geologists that were working for the pre-Johns Manville mining companies didn't realize the extent of the deposit mm-hmm. in asbestos and how it unfolds in a giant tornado shape underneath the community itself in a circular pattern. And um, so the houses were built on top of the deposit and once one part of the deposit was mined they needed to expand that into the community and so they would put the homes on logs and roll them back, roll them back <laughs> um, when, when John's Manville came into the town during the at the end of the First World War They put it in a different way. Well, yes, we are going to move your house, but we're going to give you a new one. Modern, electricity, running water, isn't this fantastic? Mm -hmm. And initially the townspeople loved it. Of course, who wouldn't love a modern house? Um, What they didn't realize was that if John's Manville built your house, they would then own your house, and they would be able to tell you when you had to move that house when the mine needed to expand again. Right. And so they didn't have very much power over their own homes, which was quite a source of conflict. And so that's when eventually the tipping point came and, and townspeople refused to move their homes. But then Johns Manville refused to let up on production in the mine, and you would have blasting occurring at very dangerous proximity to local homes, and rocks would be crashing through windows, through roofs, through car windows. And it was actually a very dangerous situation Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of a, a stalemate between community members and the company about who was going to move first.
1: It's really extraordinary, and I suppose you know there's a kind of geological route to this. Um, we'll we'll include a photograph, a couple of photographs, if we can, of the mine over time, uh, just to show for listeners what that looked like. I mean, it's it's like a cone that goes into the ground, right?
0: Yes, it is. And it's it's very different from traditional asbestos deposits, which currently, currently pardon me, that usually happen in a straight vein, um, which requires multiple mines. So if you compare the town of Asbestos with a nearby asbestos community, Tetford Mines, Tetford had about five working asbestos mines for their deposit. Um, in asbestos, you only needed one because of that circular deposit there. It was a geological quirk, if you want to look at it like that. And, um, and so it meant, it meant you could only, you only needed one mine, but also that that mine would be humongous.
1: Mm-hmm. And in
0: the 20th century, it was the largest asbestos mine in the world.
1: Now, the, the eating of the town, I think, is the most dramatic environmental transformation that we see in the book. But the book is also dealing with a health story. Um, A Tragic Health Story, in which you describe the Johns Manville company um, as using the town of asbestos and its people as a laboratory and as lab mice. Uh, Can you explain how this was the case? What did the company do when it came to addressing health concerns among asbestos workers and their families?
0: Sure. And this was really one of the most disturbing aspects of my research, actually. Um, and it really does speak to a time in Canadian history before we had government-run healthcare, care um, and the harm that can come from corporate health care, actually. Hmm. Um, when John's Manville came to asbestos, uh, they built a hospital, And that was fantastic. It was modern x-ray machines, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, However, they paid the salaries of all the doctors who worked there. And uh, the doctors then reported their findings to the company rather than the patients. Um, So there was immediately in the town of asbestos a problem with the way that health and risk were communicated to the people who were most exposed. Um, However, that wasn't quite enough for Johns Manville. And they really did want to know how bad asbestos was for human health. The first recorded person to have died of asbestos-related disease was in 1909 in the UK, actually. Mm. Um, and uh, Johns Manville didn't admit to it being dangerous until around the 1970s. Um, and so between those those times, they wanted to do as much research as they could to find out what asbestos did to the human body. So they partnered with... Dr. Leroy Gardner at the Saranac Lake Laboratory, which is near Lake Placid, New York. Um, And from the late 1930s to the early 1950s, company doctors in asbestos would secretly autopsy the lungs of dead Jeffrey mine workers. And company lawyers drove these secretly autopsied lungs across the border into New York State. So they could be studied alongside the lungs of lab mice and guinea pigs.
1: So when you say secretly, these the families have no idea this is happening. The body parts are being exhumed or taken without their consent?
0: Definitely. And they still don't know. As soon as they were removed from the body, their identities were erased. Um, and, and so although we now know that this happened, we don't know who it happened to. Hmm. Um, and uh, without digging up, um, the buried bodies of these asbestos minors, we, we never will know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, Johns Manville doctors in asbestos claim they never did autopsies hmm. uh, publicly. So that's why they couldn't tell about the disease rates in, in their employees because they didn't do autopsies. And so it was it was really a shocking um, policy
1: so why why was the company interested in, in studying these effects? Why were they engaged in such a de- detailed and elaborate experiment?
0: I think there was immense value placed on the workers in the town of asbestos. Um, the, when the first person died in 1909, they weren't sure where the asbestos had come from, if any other chemicals had been added to the mineral in the processing process mm-hmm. that would maybe be more... Um, harmful to human health than asbestos itself. Mm -hmm. But in the town, the workers in the Jeffrey mine, they were exposed to asbestos in its most pure form. Mm -hmm. And so if they were sick, that meant that asbestos was bad. Um, Mm -hmm. And as long as they weren't presenting any indication of disease, the company could say, look at these miners. They live and breathe this mineral every day and they're fine. And so they were a real tool that the company used to promote the safetiness of the mineral. And, of course, it was all lies. Um, the company has had evidence that the workers were very sick. They just chose not to tell anyone, including the workers.
1: Um, There's a couple of instances, too, in the book in, in which you show um, reports, pre-edited reports from um, scientists who conducted these experiments that were later changed,
0: yeah, that a lot of these agreements that Johns Manville would offer the people of asbestos um, up to medical researchers, otherwise they were protected by the company. Um, you could come into asbestos, you could research these workers' bodies, or we'll give you a supply of fresh lungs to your research laboratory mm-hmm. on the condition that we can edit any report that you write on it. And so it was sort of here's my first draft. This is what I found. And then the company would put its people on it to change some of the findings. So it didn't say there were incidences of disease. Um, And in fact, these researchers had found no disease in the community. Um, And it it seems to have been accepted somewhat Mm -hmm. medical practice at the time. I'm not sure. Um, We all have Um, issues with getting funding, but it seems to be a step too far um, to act so unethically um, with your medical practice. And uh, indeed, the uh, Saranac Laboratory found 57 cases of unreported lung cancer in asbestos workers from, from the town of Asbestos, and they didn't tell anybody. And that section of Gardner's official study was just redacted completely.
1: It's really shocking um, the stories that you tell about these um, experiments, the secret experiments, the covering up or disguising of evidence or withholding of evidence, particularly from workers and their families. I think listeners would be interested to know uh, about your research process, where you found the evidence of these activities at the Sarnak Laboratory, um, what were the sources that you were able to get access to to be able to tell this history?
0: Sure. Yeah, It it was really tough starting out because I had read all of these other studies of the global asbestos industry and was prepared for some really horrific things. And then when I was reading the medical journals that were published in Canada and the United States and Britain, none of this evidence was in them. And so I contacted the, these other asbestos scholars and I just said, just just a PhD student, just wondering um, where you got your sources. And, um, and of course, Johns Manville, after it went bankrupt, um, perhaps filed a lot of its uh, corporate correspondence in repositories that were fairly inaccessible to researchers, especially historical researchers. And um so these excellent asbestos scholars like Jeffrey Tweedell and um David Eggelman, they gave me access to these files through that they had taken copies of, that they had um accessed via legal subpoena that they had taken copies of and that they had been waiting for someone who was interested in the Canadian asbestos industry to pay attention to. Hmm. And there I was. <laughs> <laughs> For the Saranac Lake Laboratory, uh, it's it's a really twisted story that during the asbestos experiments in the, in the 40s, there was a South African postdoctoral student um, at the lab, and he wrote about the stolen lungs. He didn't realize they were stolen in his dissertation. Um, and he uh-huh. flew back to South Africa to defend his dissertation, and uh, Vandiver Brown, the vice president of Johns Manville at the time, also flew to South Africa to intercept submission of the dissertation. Um, he, he offered Shepard's a job at the Saranac Lake laboratory and he said yes. And it was only in the 1990s before he died that he published on this. Um, so there's wow. one article on these stolen lungs and that's mm-hmm.
1: it. Mm-hmm. I, I want to shift gears a little bit here um, to uh, the not the climax of the book, but a a real peak in the book here, Uh, you look at the asbestos workers' strike in 1949, uh, an event that's well-known in the popular memory of Quebec and in Canadian history, um, but one that you argue has been misunderstood. Uh, What is it that you think the, the popular recollection of the strike misunderstands about what happened in 1949 in the town of asbestos?
0: I think that it's been, you know... A strike or any other historical event can be interpreted by a variety of people in a variety of ways. Um, the popular memory of the asbestos strike of 49 was that it began the quiet revolution in Quebec, mm-hmm. um, which was a major sociopolitical shift within the province, which pushed back against the strongly conservative and religious leadership that seemed to have kept French Canadians in subservient positions to an Anglophone elite. And that's a really strongly felt understanding of the strike and of Quebec during this era of the Great Darkness, um, it's also seen as the event that launched or finished the political careers of major figures in Canadian history. And mm-hmm. of course, Pierre Trudeau wrote um, the asbestos strike in 1957. He was in asbestos during the strike. He even encouraged um, workers to uh, blow up the the train line leading from the mine. <laughs> Um, and later became Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> um, Jean Marchand was a, a union leader. Gérard, Gérard Pelletier was reporting for the Devoir, um, and they were both key figures in Trudeau's cabinet. Um, Maurice Duplessis, of course, was Quebec's uh, premier at the time and was traditionally seen as the bad guy in the conflict and in the years that he was in power.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the people of asbestos really resent this version of the strike. It's it, Everything about that version ignores the town of asbestos. Um, They weren't politically motivated, um, but they were just really concerned about what asbestos was doing to their bodies. They had just been informed for the first time by um, someone who could write in an accessible French for them what asbestos could do to the human body. And they were scared. They were concerned about how to feed their families. They were concerned about jobs for their children when they grew older. Um, And so it was an incredibly personal and local crisis. Um, And even with other asbestos workers throughout the province joining in on the conflict, it was in the church in asbestos that the provincial police broke in and violently arrested striking workers. It was into crowds of local women and children that tear gas canisters were fired. Um, And it was the town of asbestos not working that basically froze the entire American asbestos industry, um, hmm. and for five months, and that's significant. Um, yeah. And that is what happened. It, it, they they weren't taking part in these grand political movements. They were definitely focused on the local and how it was connected to the global.
1: It's, so, it, it, I mean, to some extent, it illustrates one of the central points of the book, um, and it's interesting to see the degree to which in, in the evidence that you pull out how significant health concerns were uh, in, during the course of the strike, um, and, and you rely uh, uh, quite extensively on the reporting of Pelletier, who he's there throughout the, the 1949 strike.
0: Yes, and he's one of the only reporters who were, were who was at the strike or who were reporting on the strike that tried to get access to the workers themselves, mm. that you would have other reporters coming in and out, um, talking to company officials, which, of course, was a valid source. Um, but Peltier slept in the, on the couches of striking workers. He was mm-hmm. very good friends with Jean Marchand, who had of course, uh, an in with the striking workers as being one of the major leaders of their union. And um, he had unprecedented access. He was invited to union meetings. No other reporter was. And he was fundamentally concerned with what they were saying, what they were feeling and what they were wanting. And really, they were wanting assurances that they wouldn't be dying, <laughs> which is very basic. And there was even yeah. one event there was a union meeting for the wives of striking workers during the strike that Pelche went to. And it was a time for these women to come in and ask union leaders about the risks asbestos posed to their husbands' health, to their children's health, to their own health. Um, and that that is excellent reporting. Mm. <laughs> and it, it just to have that those sorts of that sort of access to to this population at the time for me that tells a story of the, of the town at the time that these national grand narratives forget.
1: So at the beginning of our discussion today, you talked about some of the risks of private health care that asbestos workers experienced where they're dependent on Johns Manville as a private corporation to provide their health care, which leads to the suppression of evidence of health risks associated with asbestos. By the early 1980s, John's Manville goes bankrupt uh, and ends up selling the mine in Quebec, and the Quebec government assumes control and nationalizes the mine in the 1980s, and by that point is responsible for provincial health insurance. But you suggest that this actually made it more difficult to address the adverse health effects of asbestos. Why was this the case?
0: Um, it was the case. Well, it, it's interesting because John and Edville had a long relationship with the Quebec government before it went bankrupt. And I will say it went bankrupt because of all the class action lawsuits being launched against it by their American workers, mm-hmm. um, where, uh, you know, the American legal system is very different from the Canadian one. Um, and so they, they were being punished on in legal terms, and rightly so by their American workers. Mm-hmm. However, Um, When Maurice Duplessis was premier of Quebec, John's Manville worked with him to get asbestos-related disease removed from occupational disease lists in the province. And so workers in Quebec could not actually sue the company for any diseases they got. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is all pre-1980s. Once the, the Quebec government takes ownership of this toxic industry, Um, after its giant has collapsed under workers' compensation litigation, Mm -hmm. um, it legitimized the industry again um, because people trust governments or trusted governments in a way that they didn't trust corporations at the time. Um, And so by saying we support this industry, this is part of our identity, it's part of our culture, it's part of our economy, Mm -hmm. which it was, um, they legitimized it and muted the concerns of people uh, that people had over the effects on their health, um, and of course, it's really interesting because this was the government of Rene Levesque, and mm-hmm. Levesque had come for come to power fighting for workers' rights. He was always very vocal about the uh, the rights of workers and safety of the Quebec people. Um, of course, he was also very much concerned with the Quiet Revolution and what that meant for Quebec and its identity or sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And so the legacy of the 1949 strike, I think, really did convince the Quebec government that this was an industry worth investing in um, for some strange reason. And this all contributed, of course, to the government subsidizing the industry until 2012, which is way beyond Mm -hmm. any common sense to support this toxic industry. And they were selling it actively to developing nations and doing what Johns Manville has historically done. Um, peddling bad medical evidence to support their trade. And mm-hmm. it's 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 really interesting, the legitimacy that a government has or the authority that a government has that a corporation doesn't because we kind of think corporations are evil to begin with. Um, but a democratically elected government, oh, maybe they do have our best welfare at heart. Doesn't seem like it in this situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a, a troubling irony uh, in that environmental history, um you know the provincial government in the early part of this book is is derelict in its responsibility to um, protect the health interests and the environmental interests of its citizens. But by the 1980s, it it assumes the role that John's Manville previously held as the as the corporate or the economic interest. And I mean, it seems certainly by 2012 or it took up to 2012 for the the province and the federal government to reconcile those two roles, one, to protect the public health, uh, and two, to protect the economic life of this town.
0: Yeah, and I think it's easy for us to forget this because it's not really part of our reality, but asbestos used to be known as white gold. It was worth more than gold mm-hmm. in international markets in the 20th century. It was incredibly lucrative for governments, for corporations. And so I think the money that asbestos brought in helped convince government officials that it was worth supporting um, just because it was that much money.
1: Well, I, I have a broader question about, about your book and its, and its contemporary relevance, why we should be reading this today in Canada. You write in the introduction that, quote, the people of asbestos were aware of the dangers the mineral posed to their bodies well before it became a public is- issue. But they chose to attempt to manage the risks rather than reject the industry that gave the community purpose. This is one of the key insights of your book. Why do communities choose to accept these kinds of risks? And do you see this case study of the town of Asbestos and its history as instructive or comparable to other resource-dependent communities in Canada?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think this is the case. And when I wrote that, of course, I wasn't saying that they knew asbestos was bad and right. therefore were spreading illness around the world. They knew that their bodies were different after they were working in the industry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Their, their breathing was different. The way they could move their own bodies was different. And they had a bodily knowledge. And that's something I really tried to get at in, in my research was the different types of knowledge surrounding disease. Um, We've talked already about the knowledge that comes from laboratory research and stolen lungs, um, Mm -hmm. X-rays and blood tests and so on. But just from existing in a disease body, you know something of disease, whether you can name it or not, you know you're unwell. Um, I think that is something that I was able to get at by focusing on the local within the study rather than following the mineral around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, like more traditional studies of resources in the way that it's really interesting to see this resource communities throughout Canada, throughout the world, they are entirely dependent on one resource. And so to know that, to not really see yourself leaving your hometown because it's where you grew up, it's where all your family is, um, you're stuck. And so you accept certain risks. You say, I've had a good life, I've had a good job, look at me, I have a house. And you can live until you're 70. Asbestos doesn't kill everyone it comes into contact with, and I think that helped obscure the risk Mm -hmm. slightly. Um, And it's the same thing with, you know, people who smoke, saying, well, my grandfather smoked and he lived until he was 80. Um, You know, you could say, here, my grandfather worked in the Jeffrey Mine and he lived until he was 80, so it's fine. Yeah, sure. I have a cough, but that's just because I have a cough. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the corporate medical care situation in asbestos contributed to this as well, um, with company doctors telling Jeffrey mine workers that the reason they were coughing is because they smoked. Um, tobacco was a very um, easy scapegoat for the asbestos industry to use. Um, And so there was a lot of misunderstanding um, and blame on the workers themselves for their poor life choices um, Mm -hmm. as to why they were sick. And so it really did obscure those sorts of risks. And we can see it throughout resource industries. The coal mines in Western Canada are another example of these sorts of um, dependencies and identities rooted in a resource.
1: Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I agree with you that that local view of the town helps us understand or appreciate the people who live there. Um, So whether we're talking about coal communities in Western Canada or, um, or even um, bitumen mining communities in Northern Alberta Mm -hmm. uh, today, there are local attachments that people have to these places. And I think, I think the thing that really stood out for me in thinking about this book about a mining town is the people who live there didn't think of their lives as temporary, um, that they mm. were only in asbestos for the purposes of working, uh, for a limited period of time. And then they would eventually leave once the mineral was gone or the jobs were gone.
0: Definitely. And it doesn't follow that traditional mining narrative of boom and bust, boom and bust that people come and then go. It, this was, well, it, there were, there were a couple of busts in the 19th century. Throughout the 20th century, it was pretty boom heavy mm-hmm. and, um, and you know that everyone wanted to work in the asbestos industry. After the 49 strike, um, Quebec's asbestos workers were the best-paid miners in the country. That was significant, mm-hmm. and it was it was really important for their identity. And in fact, the people lobbied the local government to put in a newcomers tax because too many people were coming to work at the <laughs> Jeffrey mine, and so you had to pay a premium on your taxes, your local taxes for the first few years of living in asbestos, for the privilege of living in asbestos. <laughs> That's changed.
1: <laughs> well, I think I think this book is going to be of great value to uh, those who are interested in the histories of mining, the environment, and health. Uh, this book was published by UBC Press. It's called A Town Called Asbestos, Environmental Contamination, Health, and Resilience in a Resource Community. Jessica, thanks so much for telling us more about your work.
0: Well, Thank you for having me.
1: Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jessica Van Horsen and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and other podcast services, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast and leave us some comments and write a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past.